0: Leadercast is a podcast series by ISB Executive Education. This podcast features prominent business executives who are redefining functions and industries and what it means to lead in an era of accelerated change.
1: Welcome to this podcast. I'm uh, Professor Ram Nidimolo of the Organizational Behavior Department at the Indian School of Business. And I have with me uh, Sunit Sinha, He is the Head of People, Performance, and Culture at KPMG India. And uh, Sunit has a very interesting background. He was previously the Managing Director at Accenture Strategy. And uh, you were involved in, uh, you were a specialist in talent and organizational practices in uh, Asia Pacific and also the Middle East. And you set up consulting practices across the globe, I guess, in China, Indonesia, Latin America, and elsewhere. So, tremendous background a variety of experiences, and your own background in terms of education as uh, you did your MBA in HR and uh, Organizational Development at XLRI in Jamshedpur, And before that, you did your undergraduate, your BA honours in history, right? History at the University of Delhi. And uh, you were telling me your own background in terms of how you got into this field itself, how it was uh, serendipitous, right? Could you spend a minute, uh, Sunatan? how did you enter this field of HR?
0: So thanks, uh, Professor Ram. It's great to be here. And I mean, I would say that it's, uh, I call it purposeful serendipity. I always had a sense that uh, I'll work in the people domain, but in what form of capacity, I wasn't sure. Academia was one calling. The other one was to actually become a diplomat. And you know, it was all about negotiation and people and influence. But I ended up going to, uh, yeah, do a specialization in HR at XLRI. And from there on, uh, get into consulting. And okay. It's been now 25 plus years. Currently, I don't do as much of it with clients because my role is more internal facing, managing KPMG in India uh, and and all our uh, people and talent uh, management aspects. The serendipity has been around uh, really discovering the fact that in consulting, it was all about data analysis, diagnostics, problem solving, solutioning, using a lot of left brain. And I think that's where my humanities background kicked in. And I was looking for, where's the right brain thing coming in? Where are we looking at the aesthetics of it, the desirability of it, the humaneness of it? We're doing a lot of doing, but where's the being? The being. And to be honest, uh, Professor, I
1: stumbled upon it. Uh, and you mentioned, was it a book that uh, got you interested? The field itself.
0: The field itself was, yeah, there was this uh, book back in the day. Uh, I don't know if people still remember it. It's uh, by the late Peter Drucker the new realities. I think it was 1990 or 92. Someone gave it to me as a gift. And uh, he talked uh, about how people and the p- organizations will become very central. Humans will become very central to organizations and they will have to be managed far differently than other resources like finance and, and
1: other assets. In many ways, they may not even be seen as resources. Right? Exactly,
0: exactly. Yeah. And and that's what kind of triggered a, a calling and that's how I found myself where I where I am today.
1: Okay, wow. And in some ways, you could argue that HR is probably too limited a term, right? Human relations, human resources, thats a restrictive term.
0: You could say that, yes. Uh, I mean, currently, if I, if you look at my current role, I mean, it's about people. Yeah. But it's also about managing performance through people. And, of course, looking at culture. Especially in, in consulting, it's people are our only assets. So I would argue it's not just in one industry, every industry. You can have technology, you can have products. But ultimately, the one thing which is your X factor mm-hmm. are your people and your culture. Mm-hmm. So and but I see that change. I see a lot of uh, leaders who manage people for organizations are There's chief people officer, culture officers. Yes. I even came across chief happiness officer once. So, yes. Yes. Uh, so I think uh, yeah, I think things are changing. I think we're being yeah. becoming more uh, human centric.
1: And so, what's uh, different about human centred design compared to other consulting approaches?
0: So yeah. here's the thing as i was talking about you know in in while you still need to do that and at, in no way do i think that the classical approaches of consulting which is you do a hypothesis you test it you look at data you draw some insights you do a diagnostic and then you problem solve do some solutions and then come up with an implementation plan you look at technical feasibility financial viability that's not going away however i the, the sense that i got was that and i i think it's also a little bit about how today consulting approaches are changing. It's not just a report that you need to give at the end of the day to the client. The client is looking for an outcome. The client is looking for implementability. And the scale of the impact and change has really grown exponentially, Professor. And people are at the heart of that impact. Also, today there's hardly any solution that doesn't involve some technology or digital tool that needs to enable it. And therefore, you need to look at the stakeholder. You need to look at people. And that's where I think. Who desire, are affected by this Who technology. are impacted. That's why desirability yeah. comes into play. Yeah. And I mean, I, we, we can talk of examples, but I, I'll be honest, I stumbled upon it. Yeah. When I started doing a few things, which at that point, I'll be honest, back in the day, I was a young engagement manager, senior consultant, principal consultant. Some of my peers and leaders would call me a maverick. Why Sunni doing? Because this?
1: you're different, doing different things. I yeah, Sunni's
0: up to his, yeah. you know, empathetic workshop, and 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 I didn't even realize that there was a, cons, a entire field of design thinking and human centric design till the time I was inspired by again. You know, we get inspiration from everywhere. I saw a TED talk by Tim Brown, mm-hmm. the uh, one of the mm-hmm. founders of IDEO, mm-hmm. and then I was inspired to read his book, "Change by Design," and then I realized that a lot of the elements of how transformation doesn't happen or change doesn't happen in organizations because we're not putting people at the center yeah. and that's what I believe human-centric design is all about that ultimately if your solution is not positively impacting yeah. the person who you're designing the solution for and it could be a customer it could be people in the organization or it could be a stakeholder in the ecosystem then you're somewhere falling short and you know, and professor you'll, you'll relate to this there's this iceberg model of change and I saw that for the first time in 1996 in, I think it was OB3 class mm-hmm. in XLRI. And the data point was 70% of transformations fail or they don't achieve their objectives because of softer aspects. Yeah. I don't think, I mean, I yeah. was struggling. That that's, Not many
1: realize that. Right? The, but yeah. the slides,
0: the data point doesn't yeah. change. And then yeah. as I realized, and I started using this in practice, yeah. I saw that the impact was much more because people would own it. And that's where... that's So, that's so what, what my, is
1: it about the human side and that uh, often gets overlooked? Is it the emotion side of human beings? Is it the reason side of it? What gets overlooked?
0: My view is it's the emotional side. Uh-huh. Uh, and now there's some research that is backing it up, uh, which is especially research in the social domain, which is the, about the fact that, you know, the classic value-death change curve, mm-hmm. that people first understand the change, then they accept it, then there's this value, then they start understanding the what's-in-it-for-me question, which is all about a very rational uh, way of looking at it. You know, you're looking at your cost-benefit. In my own experience, and some of the social research now validates it, people trust before they leap. And that's where I think the emotion comes in. And that's where I found often organizations lack, and they don't invest enough time. Mm -hmm. They believe good change management is communication and giving uh, FAQs, frequently asked questions on why you should do this. Yeah,
1: The business case for the, the change. The business
0: case, which is
1: yeah, also yeah. needs
0: to be there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the financial viability and the implementability has to, be there, has to be there, but the desirability for human beings.
1: Why should
0: I? Why should I do this? Why should I trust this? So I think that's where I got inspired that, you know, we need to do more of this. And I'm happy today, pretty much the entire consulting industry, whether you're, Working in a firm for clients, or you're part of an internal project or internal consulting team, people are talking about design thinking. People are talking about doing the using those various tools and methodologies, which are more human-centric. Yeah. We're looking at the stakeholders. The are center. there particular
1: industries, kinds of applications, where this kind of human-centred design thinking is especially useful, or does it apply everywhere? My,
0: my, my honest answer, I'll be brutally honest: humans, yeah. in respect to well, I mean. They have the same emotions whether they're working in a large public sector organization, oil and gas, or in the bank. In my own personal experience, I've seen this being very powerfully at an airport business, in a logistics and port business, at an auto company, a, in an oil and gas company, where very different contexts and different geographies. Yeah. But the impact was as powerful. I mean, there are, of course, differences of culture and language. Yeah. But in the end, you know, transformation does not need to be exhausting. It has to be inspiring and exciting, and that's that you do by putting the human in that transformation.
1: And so, really, you want to ensure through this change process that the human being is excited by the change. What so? What do you take into account to enable this human-centred design? What factors? What uh, aspects of the human being should be considered?
0: So, I think two or three things. One is, you know, the the why of it. People often jump to what we're doing and how we're doing it. Oh, we're doing this digital transformation because X, Y, Z. And we're going to do this through this consultant and this platform. But the why gets left out. And people derive meaning from how that relates to their purpose. Why are they showing up for work? And and unless it, you make it personal for them and literally talk to everyone in the organization, and I can, I can share examples where it happened and it then is magic.
1: Can you describe one of them? What happened?
0: So So one was in this uh, airport, uh which had been recently privatized. And of course, there were big plans of expanding the airport and taking it to the next level, making it world class, etc. And this was the time when I was doing this unconsciously. Uh I didn't even realize that this was human-centered design. And the biggest challenge from a people perspective was almost 3,000 housekeeping staff. Most of them who had worked with the government all their lives who had to give up the job security of that government job and Sign outsourcing contracts for themselves, you know, and the classic ways of communication, etc., would, would not have worked. So I chanced upon it, and I must give credit to some of the teams who worked with me, including from and the client. We actually thought of using theatre,
1: mm-hmm.
0: folk theatre, mm-hmm. as a way for change management, mm-hmm. telling stories. It's very yeah. powerful, and it's a human thing, and it appeals uh-huh. to your emotion.
1: Stories of the change.
0: Stories of the change, That's but it. delivered through a folk theatre medium. Again, people were very skeptical whether it will change or not, whether it will give the impact or not, but it did. And I don't recall, and it became a little bit of a case study in in the firm I was working in at that point of time, where we said that, that, look, it's about storytelling. And and also what what we did was we involved the people in that. It was something that was done on them. These women were empowered to co-create the vision that they needed of their lives. They felt included. They co-created. And that's where the emotional aspect came in.
1: Now, there's this very interesting analogy in uh, psychology on uh, the elephant and the rider. I don't know if you heard of that, the, the famous one. The elephant is the emotional aspect of us, very powerful. Therefore, in any change, you have to make the elephant feel good. The rider is the reasonable side, the business case. So this concern they had of losing their jobs, which is sort of an elephant Fear response. Yeah. How did you address that?
0: No, because you know, okay. So in in that particular folk theatre form, and this was in in India, actually, in uh, and I can tell you, it was in Mumbai. So mm-hmm. it was a, a, a local Marathi folk theatre form that we that we uh, used. I think the way we addressed was that you know we asked them to visualize what would they feel their lives to be if the change was positive, and create their own stories. And through that, we were trying to tell them that, look, this is exactly what this change will allow you to do. It's Mm -hmm. not about security. It's about living fulfilling lives, being empowered. Because what ended up happening was that each of them, from becoming government employees, they did a mind shift to becoming essentially single entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. Some of them went on to set up their own businesses. Mm -hmm. The the idea was that, the idea was not to just, Cost the idea was to enable a transformation in the way that whole function was performed in that airport, and they owned that.
1: Okay, so if one door closes, which is the security door, yeah, another door opens, and they all, which is the entrepreneurship.
0: And and it was amazing the kind of create imagination, the kind of boldness that one saw. Uh See, that's the other thing, uh, Professor Ram, that tends to happen with the classic method. You assume, oh, these are housekeeping staff, oh, they're not really highly skilled, they won't be able to imagine. But you know, human potential is not limited by the education, education and the degrees we gather. Mm-hmm. And I was really, really inspired by what those women did. And then, of course, then I was on a spree of using this in different client contexts. And they worked with, exactly. they worked yeah. in in more sophisticated type of client environments as well.
1: The strengths of uh, this approach are unleashing a potential, a kind of fulfilling. What challenges come up in applying human-centered design?
0: There are two, three main challenges. That at least I have faced, and you know, my, my, based on my experience, one is the challenge of time. See, in today's business environment, when CEOs and boards, and most importantly the market, wants quick results, fast results, exponential results, time becomes the enemy. That's been my biggest one because these this type of an approach does take time, professor. I think the second one is that what tends to sometimes happen is that you end up doing a little bit of lip service. So we are doing design thinking, we're doing human-centric design. So all of a sudden, the post-its in the workshop become multicolored. Uh, People turn up in casuals and jeans thinking that, you know, we're doing design thinking. Okay. But they're still driving the same agenda in a very classic, you know, convergent thinking right. mindset. So it's just
1: appearances. Yes. And, you know,
0: and, and consulting firms are great at it. They'll make yes. a methodology and a process out of it. I'm not saying that you should not have a process, but then allow enough what I would say, creative license to apply it. I think that's the second one. So a little bit of our own mindsets as consultants come in with it. And the third one is also you need to display what I would say growth mindset because often these interventions prove that your initial assumptions were wrong. I see. So are you ready to say that I was wrong?
1: Yeah. Is there you know, an example in any of his assignments where uh, turned out that in his initial assumptions were very wrong?
0: Oh, yeah, big one. Big oh. one. I, I mean, there was this... Uh, this was the auto company example. We went in thinking it's a productivity study. There's going to be massive cost takeout, restructuring, you know, the classic restructuring. And even I assumed. And this was many years. I mean, now actually, we, we the firms were talking about design thinking as an approach. So we said, oh, this is standard white collar productivity, etc. We'll do. I think about eight weeks into the assignment, we realized that we we'd got it totally wrong. The client had given us a scope, Uh and as often happens, we've just taken it without Uh really asking the right questions. We actually paused, we took a step back, and I stood up in a sitting committee with the chairman and said that, I don't think the problem is out there. Uh The problem is in here.
1: Meaning it's not a market problem, but a problem within the organization, is it?
0: It's not even outside the boardroom. I see. So it was in him and his leadership team. Okay. So we said that, look, we should take a step back and rescope this as a leadership alignment assignment. And once we've done that, then we should look at what are the two, three solution themes. And it came out of a very simple design thing, diagno- diagnostic that we ran on the top 30, 35 leaders, which showed the misalignment. And it was more about emotion, okay. less about people not understanding the vision of the company or the business strategy or not having the resources.
1: I see, and the misalignment was these leaders didn't trust the board? What was going on?
0: What was happening was that, I think there was a lot of ownership of what is going on at the N minus two, and minus three level, but the N and the N minus one was not clear. And there were, I think, elements of hidden agenda, misalignments of, of culture, or you know, because there were some people who'd been in the organization for long, some people come in later. So we actually took a pause, I, we said, I said, look, we, I think we got it wrong, if you if you do want to continue, let's do this differently. And after that we did a say, series of four or five workshops with that top team of the client, we reached them to a certain level of alignment, and then we relooked at the entire hypothesis.
1: That brings up, uh, you know, an interesting comment you made in the very beginning, mm-hmm. which is doing and being. Right? Right? that uh, a lot of consulting a lot of uh, such kind of work, change leadership is about doing, but there's a critical part, which is about being. What did you mean by that? What I meant by that was again, going
0: back to the question that, you know, people ultimately work also, they, they need meaning. Yes, of course they have a job, they show up, but I would say unless you are able to answer the why question for them and relate to the larger organizational purpose or in the context of some transformation to why you're doing the transformation, you will not have them engaged and motivated. I mean, there's a reason why, again, going back, you know, because they, 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 unless they're being true to themselves, to their purpose, and the purpose doesn't have to be a very lofty one. You know, you need to, they need to, it needs to relate to them. Long time back, one of the founders uh, of, of an organization, very successful, had told me, I was in my formative years as a consultant that, and he was known to drive a very, very aligned culture. He says, you know, the reason we are successful is only two things. One, everyone here knows how we make money from me till the person last in the line. So so therefore, the business is important. But the most importantly, he says that you'll also see all of us understand exactly how we need to behave and show up and why we do this. So even the entry level, you know, warehouse operator knows why we do this. And even I know why we do this. So there's a
1: larger purpose. That they that's all. That's a larger
0: have. purpose. Yeah. So that's the that's I think the being yeah. and 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 again that human aspect often gets I would say missed out or de-emphasized, de-emphasized yeah. or it's the last slide. I mean yeah. in my own career yeah. I've had to actually fight the internal battles to convince my colleagues who come from a technology background or who are doing the financial reengineering, engineering or doing the market strategy to convince them.
1: Look, this is important. There's a human being behind yeah. everything. Yeah? A customer, so, a supplier,
0: and in my current role, it it, yeah. it continues. We're saying yes. you know, people always yeah. p- putting people in in the center and making yeah. it human-centric.
1: Yeah. And so that brings up this thing about sustainability, right? right. Creating sustainable solutions. How does that help? How does uh, human-centered design enable sustainability?
0: I would say once uh, I mean I mean for me the idea is very simple. If, I mean, today, sustainability has been around for a while. Today, it's becoming more and more important. But if, and I, but if I look at any solution that you're providing, I mean, ultimately, if it's not enhancing the ease of working or the ease of experience of that product or that service for humans, for the community at large, mm-hmm. then and, and it's not being net additive, then clearly it's going to have consequences which are negative. So I would say a human-centric design where you are looking at that element of desirability so looking at that element of involving people and communities should be more sustainable.
1: But sometimes yeah, that desirability can go against uh, long-term sustainability, like the environment and so on. How do you fold that in? What I want and really desire might go against the long-term of the planet, of the economy, of the environment.
0: That's where I guess leaders need to buy into it. And I think that's maybe something we, we you may have wanted to touch upon as well. That's where I think you need to make the right choices. And that's where leaders come in. And to my view, you know, just going back and thinking where this approach has worked is where leaders have also been bought in. I mean, even the example I gave, mm-hmm. if the leaders are not bought into the different approach, we couldn't have gone down that path. So I think leaders have a responsibility. I would not say that they're the only ones, but they have a responsibility in aligning them. They're also people. What, what often gets missed out is how tough it's the pressure and the stresses on the leaders, especially today. The kind of complexity they're dealing with internally and the volatility out externally. So I always say that look, get the top of the house Absolutely. in order. And get them, them to align. get them aligned. So I think if we have the leadership sponsorship, then hopefully hopefully we will not have the trade off between long term consequences for the planet versus the desirability of the solution.
1: And that's where integrity comes in, right? Integrity yeah. is about that long term yeah. sustainability. Absolutely. Yeah. Very interesting. You know, this comes up often in the classes I teach in leadership. Uh, many of these ideas of being and so on are wonderful. But the real world, this is the term that is used quote unquote real world, is a nasty world, dog-eat-dog kind of world. My boss might be a nasty guy, my colleagues, is tremendous competition. Are these kinds of ideas, human-centered thinking at all practical? Or are you setting yourself up for failure, that you're the weak guy in a way in all this?
0: I, I would identify with that. Often these approaches have been questioned on the element of practicality. You know, it's it's too time-consuming. It's going to take too long. Decision-making is going to be delayed. Here's my view. The data bears it all. The data bears it all that organizations which are focused on putting people first, uh, looking at, you know, hum- whether, and look at different aspects of it. Sustainability, inclusive cultures, look innovation, psychological safety, Organizations which are investing ahead of the curve on those are eventually out competing the rest. So I would say that while short term, the practical approach works, but longer term sustainability of results, business results comes from applying a human centric approach. And to the point of, you know, whether it will work in the real world or not, to those leaders, I'll say that, you know, if you're finding challenges in your ecosystem, maybe you need to find the right ecosystem where you will be encouraged to display, let's say change
1: your job. You may want to.
0: Well, I I don't want to don't want to get get people to start uh, you know updating their CVs and finding new jobs. But essentially, as a leader, yeah. to figure out how you know how you'll drive the change, yeah. because ultimately, often I've seen what leaders or all of us criticize is often a reflection of what we are unwilling to change ourselves.
1: I understand what we can't change internally. And I also want to spend a minute or two just exploring you. You, you know, as a human being in the middle of this, we talked of purpose. We talked of a larger sense of what you want to do and so on. What is your larger purpose in work? What would you want to achieve? And let me phrase it this way. When you're retired or when you're you know, in your 80s or so, what would make you look back and think that was a life well spent when it came to work?
0: Very interesting question, Professor And I often reflect on it. I mean... And very recently, I went through a session where I was asked to explore this aspect. So, I mean, one of the things that uh, I have I mean, if I look back at my career and, and whatever lies ahead, I would say that I've always loved enabling others to find their greatness and be in situations where if there are conflicting views, if there are conflicting uh, issues, agendas, how do you disarm that situation?
1: Mm-hmm
0: by putting people's emotions in there first, because ultimately those conflict situations are all about insecurities. So How do you make people safe and secure? I would like, like love to be remembered as someone who made a difference, made people feel safe and comfortable so that they could truly be who they could be and find the solutions which were far beyond what a typical one plus one equal to two would have been. Well,
1: very interesting, sort of a non-zero sum.
0: Non, non, yeah. yeah, non-linear, um, non-zero yeah, sum. Yeah. So that's a little bit of how I've also shown up as a team member, as a leader. And yeah, that's how I would like to that's, be that's a great
1: expression, letting people, enabling people to be who they can be. What would you, you know, just to, to put into just a few words, what would your epitaph be if you, you know, hypothetical? What would you have written on the epitaph? Here lies Sunit Sinha. Yeah.
0: He was peaceful and he always made peace.
1: Okay. 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 Peace is critical. I think so. Yes.
0: Peace yeah. is critical. And it's not peace in the in the political term. It's about the beings, being centered. It's about being authentic. It's about being vulnerable. It's about, it's about helping people be psychologically safe. That's my connotation of peace.
1: Being a human being. Absolutely. Yep. To be a human being. Very interesting. Fascinating. Fascinating. And I think we've uh, essentially covered all the topics that I was thinking of course, we could talk for another couple of hours easily.
0: Oh, yes. I mean, you know, your questions have been very incisive. Professor, and also inspired me to think a little differently I'm, as I am. Very I'm, good.
1: So it's been fascinating. Thank, thank you, you so
0: much, Professor Ram. It's been a lovely talking to
1: you. Thank you very much.